นโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังกุณุตรังอุปภัชายังนามาสามีอันลงทายมาก่อน when I was still a school boy I was very poor at science science didn't have much interest In science, and at the beginning of one new year, I thought I'd won the jackpot because we were given new textbooks, and I looked um, through the book and found that the Section at the back with the answer to all the exercises in the book um, was still there, and mostly in the textbooks, the teachers would take out that section. And I thought, well, this year uh, physics is going to be a lot easier than in the previous years. I thought the teacher had made some mistake, and then. I realized, of course, that um, knowing the answer to the question didn't really help that much, because um, you had to prove to the teacher the steps in the argument that led from the question to the answer. Um, and in the absence of those steps, then uh, you wouldn't pass any tests or exams. So I often um, remembered this um, this lesson, and I think that it's applicable um, to all of us who study the uh, the Dhamma. <clears throat> And especially if you study the more difficult um, areas of the Dhamma, like the Abhidhamma, it's like it's a lot of hard work to learn it. So you feel that you've gained something. It's like you've got some answers. But the question is uh, how to create the right connection between your questions and your answers. So, as Buddhists, um, we consider that life is um, asking us questions, or asking us, um, "What are we doing with our lives?" And then the um, the words of the Buddha himself: "Days and nights are relentlessly passing. Uh, what are we doing with our?" Uh, meaning, how are we acting? How are we speaking? How are we using our minds? Uh, 
um, given that um, death can come at any moment, um, how confident are we that we are ready for whatever um, is to come? So this sense of readiness is the essential meaning of, of the word we say, heedful. Someone is heedful, um, meaning that they're ready for whatever may occur, whether it's something that they like, something they dislike, um, something that's unexpected, expected, or something unexpected. So as Buddhists, we're trying to develop that quality of, of mindfulness and awareness um, where we don't feel this um, need to try to control situations or control the people around us um, because um, we are confident that whatever occurs, we have the tools that we need to deal with it. So it's, we don't have a a step-by-step -step plan saying, if this happens, I will do that. But it's this general sense of um, understanding the, the way things um, appear, the way things grow, the way things wane, the way things disappear. When I was um, an Anagarika, where I'd, I was um, keeping eight precepts and uh, living with uh, Lumpur Sumato in England. There was a, um, a visitor who challenged him and said, you monks are pacifists, um, aren't you? Yes. Um, so what would happen if a madman uh, was to um, attack your mother with a knife. What would you do? Given that you're, uh, you, you hold the vinaya so dearly, you'd rather, and in the text it says you would rather die than break a precept. Um, what would you do? And I, I thought that, uh, Lumpur Sumato's answer was a very wise one. Um, and he said, I cannot tell you exactly what I would do in a, that kind of hypothetical situation. But um, as long as I maintain my practice of the Eightfold Path and of mindfulness, then I am confident that I would do the right thing. So what the right thing might be um, is not something that you can decide um, beforehand because there are so many um, conditions, uh, so, man so much of the context is omitted when we um, devise these um, moral dilemmas. And then that's... Um, the reason why they um, they can be misleading, but so we don't have to have like a whole range of Buddhist answers to cover 
every eventuality, but we need to be developing that quality of awareness that we can say more or less, um, let it come, let it, whatever arises, I'm ready. So the, one of the most um, important words, and one that's um, perhaps not that well known, except amongst scholars, is the word Aseka Pugala. So it's one of the names given, or one of the epithets of an Arahant, a fully enlightened being. So Seka is um, the same word as Sika, or training, and Aseka um, is, uh, means beyond the training, and a Pugala is a person. So the Arahant is a person who has finished the work. He's graduated. Okay. So we can say the Arahant is a graduate. And um, the reason the Buddha chose this word, uh, or one of the reasons, um, I think is it's, it's important to understand that the Buddha Dhamma and the Buddhist religion is essentially an education system. So the dominant view and dominant understanding of religions is that they are essentially belief systems. And this is why people who are um, members uh, of belief system religions find Buddhism so difficult to understand because they try to understand it in terms of beliefs. So uh, often you'll find perhaps a Christian friend or a Muslim friend, Jewish friends, oh, you're a Buddhist, um, you believe in rebirth, don't you? Um, or um, you're a Buddhist, you believe in this and believe in that. So uh, the idea is that you can summarize a religious tradition in terms of its dogmas or its most important beliefs that members of that religion sign up for. Um, and that's not the case in Buddhism. And we shouldn't um, allow ourselves to, to accept that idea of Buddhism, that it's a set of beliefs that we live by. But the Buddhist teachings um, are a holistic, extremely sophisticated and um, complete um, system of education. And the word for education in the time of the Buddha is this word sikha, um, which is usually um, translated as training. But this is really a synonym. It means the same thing. So we have the threefold uh, training or the threefold education. So for this reason, um, the whole idea of like being a practicing Buddhist. And so we say, oh, he's a, like a practicing uh, Christian or, or a non-practicing Christian. Um, in, in Buddhism, there's no such thing as a non-practicing Buddhist. You, you can't, uh, because uh, Buddhism, to be a Buddhist means to practice. To be a Buddhist, you, um, you become a Buddhist, you, you 
um, express your um, Buddhist identity by taking on the Buddha's education. So it's not just a matter of believing um, in that there is such a thing as enlightenment um, or believing that there is such a thing as merit, but it's taking these teachings and putting them to the test in your life. So the 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 difference um, between these two ideas about what a religion might be um, are clearly revealed in the Buddhist attitude to faith. On one occasion, a Brahmin went to visit the Buddha, and the Buddha pointed to Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana, the great disciples, and he said, these are the great disciples, they are completely faithless. They have no faith. Uh, so this was, um, you know, um, in one sense, the Buddhist sense of humor um, showing itself again. But uh, he was making a very important point that that faith um, has an important role in leading you onwards to the truth. Um, but once uh, you have realized the truth, you don't have to believe it, in it anymore. Um, so you might have all kinds of beliefs about London, for instance, what London is like. You might have see, heard about it or seen it in movies and so on. Um, and you have various beliefs about it. Um, but once you, if you had the opportunity to go to London, uh, then you don't have to believe those things anymore. It's not, it's not belief in the same way because you verified your ideas about it. So in, um, in Buddhism we have certain, um, beliefs, um, particularly in the beginning of our practice, and they can be summarized in two um, two points. First is the belief in the enlightenment of the Buddha. And secondly is the belief in the law of Kamma. These are absolutely fundamental uh, to our, our life and our progress in the Buddha's teachings. But let's take this first point and look at it in some more detail because this is not just a belief um, that something did or did not happen 2,600 years ago under a tree in northeastern India. Um, the, the point um, is that uh, prior to his enlightenment, the Buddha was an ordinary human being, or you can say he was a very special human being, um, in that he had um, long ago made the vow uh, to become a Buddha, and he had been uh, cultivating the causes and conditions for Buddhahood for an unimaginably long time. But until that moment of enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he was not a Buddha, he was a human being. And so he 
gained enlightenment as a human being. And, or to put it another way, as a representative of the human race. And by realizing enlightenment, the Buddha demonstrated the potential of the human being for enlightenment. This is, this is the meaning to be derived from um, that event 2,000 and more years ago in India. The Buddha proved the human potential for enlightenment. Now, if we um, can take on um, that conviction, there's a further step. And this is perhaps the most important step, um, because uh, from this general belief in the human potential for enlightenment, uh, we assert our own potential for enlightenment. So this is the progression, this is the profound meaning of this leap of faith. We can't prove, any of us, what actually happened 2,600 years ago. No matter how hard you meditate and however how hard you study, um, you, you won't be able to prove that this actually happened. So this is an article of faith. But it's not simply a dogma, you know, um, this happened, and I believe it happened. But there, it leads onwards. This is an open eye. It is a, it's a Dhamma that leads onwards. It leads onwards to a belief about our own life. And the belief is that I can, I have the potential as a human being, whether I'm an Asian or a Caucasian, a man or a woman, I have the potential for enlightenment within me. Um, and so from there, uh, we are faced with a challenge. See, it doesn't stop there. This is the thing about Buddhist faith. It's always leading onwards. So from that faith, yes, I have the potential for enlightenment. So how is that potential realized? It's realized by abandoning the unwholesome, developing the wholesome, and purifying the heart. This is another formulation of this education that the Buddha um, gave to us. So um, if we if we believe that, yes, we have the potential for enlightenment, if we have any integrity um, and, and uh, commitment, then we have to put it to the test. So we have to start to try to abandon the unwholesome and see, is it actually possible? And to develop the wholesome and to try to purify the mind. So this is how we put our, our faith to the test. It's not just a matter of believing in something and that's the end of it. Now I'm a Buddhist. Because it's not believing about something outside of you. It's believing about something that you can 
and should do during this precious life as a human being. Um, so if you believe that you can abandon the unwholesome, you should try. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe the Buddha's wrong. You need at least to find out for yourself. The Buddha said that you can uh, develop, you can cultivate the wholesome. So you try, put it to the test. Was the Buddha right? Um, and you try to purify your heart. So the duty, the responsibility that arises simultaneously with this act of faith is you have to put it to the test. So um, with, with uh, other uh, religious traditions, it's very different. You either believe something happened or you don't believe it. Um, but here, um, it's a put it to the test, give it a try. This is why I'm saying that um, the, this effort um, has, arises naturally from faith the effort to test, to put to the test the things that you believe in um, because they are concerned with your life. They're not something outside of you. So, from, so if looked at in this perspective, you can see that uh, sometimes the, uh, when, you, when you hear these um, criticisms, that Buddhism is a pessimistic religion. Yeah, Buddhism just teaches that everything is suffering. What a miserable religion. Um, but in fact, um, you can probably say that the Buddhist, Buddhism has the most um, positive um, understanding of the human condition in that it asserts the inherent potential of human being for enlightenment. And the Buddha is saying that with all of the greed and the hatred and the delusion um, and the jealousies and the um, selfishness and uh, uh, all of those dark uh, forces and what we call defilements of mind, there is no defilement which is an inherent part of the human heart. There is nothing there which is fixed. So if you have a, if you have a religious tradition that believes that the human heart is fundamentally flawed, then it's very difficult to develop a system of training. Um, so it would be like you have a lump of coal and you're given, and someone says, why don't you try to um, burnish that coal and make it shine and make it bright and beautiful? Um, and, and you say, well, no, this coal is coal. You can rub the coal and, and um, um, whatever you do to coal, coal will never be bright and shiny. But if you have an, uh, if you look on, uh, if you're given an uncut diamond and you say, make that beautiful, then if you know the, the method um, and you apply yourself correctly, you can make a beautiful jewel. So this is the, um, the idea that we have is that the, the human heart is not a black lump of coal, it's an uncut diamond. Um, 
So uh, an uncut diamond is not beautiful unless you do something about it. You can't just say, I've got a diamond. You know, it's, it, it's meaningless unless you uh, know how to work on that uncut diamond and cut it and polish it um, and bring out the beauty which lies within it. This is why as Buddhists, uh, we have, to, we are practicing Buddhists. Um, there's no such thing as a non-practicing Buddhist. You know, say, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. I believe in Buddhism, but you know, I haven't really got round to uh, practicing yet. This is this is a fallacy. Um, so in Thailand, well, uh, you know, Thai, um, Thailand is culturally, you know, a, a Theravada Buddhist nation. Um, but there are a lot of people who, you know, have this idea that they're not yet ready to practice or think you have to be, uh, you know, get old and, and then you can start to practice. And, and so I have, uh, uh, like a, an analogy which is sort of teasing people. I say, let's, uh, let's say someone goes for a job, applies for a job in a hospital. And they say, I'd like to work, um, as a doctor in this hospital. And the um, the director of the hospital says, "Oh, um, where did you graduate um, from? Sirirat Hospital or Mahidon? Is the big teaching hospitals in, uh, or did you graduate overseas?" And he said, um, "Well, no. Um, oh, so you're still a medical student? Mm, no, I, you know, I I don't really have time yet to, to study." medicine um they said well how on earth are you do you do you expect to be a doctor in this hospital he said it's in my blood yeah my my parents are doctors my granddaughters are doctors so I, i'm just a doctor since i've been a doctor since i was born um and and this is every bit as foolish an idea as saying yes i'm a buddhist they say, well, on what grounds do you consider yourself a Buddhist? Do you, uh, do you keep precepts? Do you, do you practice meditation? You know, what, in what does your Buddhist identity consist of? And you say, well, I'm, I'm a Buddhist from birth. My parents are Buddhists. My grandparents are Buddhists. And it doesn't work like that. You know, you're a Buddhist, um, through, um, the way you, um, the way you live in the world. So in, in the in the belief system religions, like belief trumps everything. You know, you can um, you can kill. I mean, some religions you can kill other human beings. You know, as long as you don't do it for yourself, but you're doing it for your religion because you have a belief, you have a faith um, that what you're doing is right, or there's some um, passage that you can quote in your holy book. Um, but in, in Buddhism, it's the quality of your actions, um, the, your intention um, that determines um, the, uh, the goodness of your, your actions, not what you believe. Um, so in other words, the, um, and this is going on to the second of these points, we believe in law of kamma, which means that the intention and whether your intention to act is influenced by defilement or not determines the results of the action. So 
uh, and the your beliefs and your understanding and your rationalization for your actions um, will affect the um, the severity or the intensity of the kamma, but not whether or not that the kamma is wholesome or unwholesome. So that that's maybe a little bit hard to follow. Let let me give an example that the intention to kill, to take life, um, is always bad kamma, whatever the situation. But if you were um, uh, conscripted into the army and forced to go and fight, and you were not, uh, and you had no sense of anger and um, aversion to the enemy, um, you felt sorry for them, or you felt some some um, sympathy with their their position. Um, and when you shot, you shoot somebody. And you know, it's you really don't want to do it, but you have no choice. Um, then it would still be bad karma because there is the intention to pull the trigger, and somebody dies. That's the determinant. There's the intention to kill in the mind. That's the significant factor. But the other, um, the reasons uh, are mitigating factors, which means that the, the karma will be for an act of killing will be relatively mild. Whereas if you um, develop a hate, a hatred of someone and particularly someone who's a benefactor, as a good person, a benefactor, someone who's done you kindness before, and you sit and you think about it and you plan, you know, the way that you can kill that person that inflicts the uh, maximum amount of pain and, and, and anguish, then if you were to kill someone, the, the intention to kill is the same, but all those other mental factors exaggerate or increase the severity of the kamma. So the kamma itself, the bad kamma, um, is determined by the intention, but the severity is determined by all these other factors. But it's not because, well, you know, I didn't really want to do it, or, you know, I didn't realize. No, but if you had the intention to kill, um, that that is the karmic factor. So this is our understanding um, in Buddhism, and um, we have to keep coming uh, back to that again and again. And what that means is that uh, we uh, we create our own life. We are responsible for the quality of our life. Um, ultimately, um, as Buddhists. Uh, we uh, we say, yeah, um, the buck stops here. Yeah. So, when you understand that, firstly, um, you see that, for instance, um, nobody can make you suffer. And so we say, oh, you know, it's such a bad time right now. So this person, he made me so unhappy. He treated me so badly, you know, it made me suffer so awfully. Um, or 
or this happened and that happened, it just made me so upset. So this is a case of where um, our language um, undoes us, our, our language creates problems or a lack of mindfulness in language or just adopting the usual way of speaking and not looking at what's really going on. So if somebody um, abuses you, um, do they make you suffer? So to, to, to expand upon this point, let, let me take another example uh, here. If, um, if you were to put your hand in the fire, your skin would burn, it would be painful. If an evil person was to put their skin, their hand in the fire, their skin would burn. If an arahant or a bodhisattva was to put their hand in the fire, it would burn because this is the nature of human skin. This is what happened when fire comes into contact with skin. So we could say that the pain arises because of the fire, okay? And anybody who puts their hand in the fire would have an almost identical result. But mental pain is not like that, is it? So um, somebody might uh, abuse you um, and say terrible things, and uh, one person might be terribly upset, another person might be indifferent, uh, another person might um, spread loving kindness to that person. So it's not like a, a fixed thing, like the hand in the fire. Because what's happening, you know, physically, um, you hear something, there's sound impinging on the ear, and you interpret it. And that interpretation of it um, is something that comes from you. It's not something that comes from the person who's abusing you. And uh, Lumpo Cha had a, used to uh, give an example, two people walking along the road. There's a man walking on the other side of the road who starts abusing um, the person here and uh, saying horrible things about him and it feels very bad. And then his friend says, come down, come down. Look, that, that guy... He's crazy. He has a mental illness. He doesn't know what he's saying. And so although that person continues to say these nasty, terrible things, the person doesn't feel the same way anymore because he has a new understanding um, of what's going on. So this is how we can... Um, take responsibility for our lives. Now, there's a very um, important point to be made here in that some people will understand Buddhism teaches don't blame other people for your suffering, don't blame um, the situation you find, blame yourself. Um, and that's not, that's not what the Buddha is teaching. But the Buddha is saying that we can... Um, we can um, discriminate between causes and conditions. So if somebody is 
treating you badly um, and acting um, uh, unjustly towards you or trying to make life difficult for you, um, then um, they are creating the conditions for you to suffer. But ultimately, whether or not you suffer um, is um, a function of your um, inner maturity, your, the amount of the Buddha's education that you have uh, taken on and the extent to which you have learned the teachings, uh, learned the, the lessons that the Buddha is teaching you. You know how to look after your mind. So if somebody is treating you badly or you're in an unjust uh, situation, um, then your first responsibility um, is um, to protect your mind and not to suffer. But that's not the end of the story. Because uh, once you have looked after, you can protect your heart, you still have to deal with the external situation. Um, if it's incorrect or someone's acting badly, then they, need, they may need some feedback or they need... It doesn't mean that you just become passive and that your job is just not not to is just to deal with it. Um, so, at the time of the Buddha, the word that he used most often uh, to refer to his body of teachings was not Buddhism. That's a much later uh, name, um, but he referred to it most often as the Dhamma Vinaya. So. The Dhamma is the inner teaching and the Vinaya is the external uh, teaching. So the practice of Vinaya, although the word Vinaya is generally uh, understood to refer to the monk's discipline, in fact it has a wider, more profound meaning and it means the way that we set up our life together um, in families and in communities um, so as to most effectively support the practice of Dhamma. And so that can be in verbal agreements um, under, and uh, conventions um, and regulations and laws um, and customs. All of, these, all of these things for like a whole network um, of skillful means by which um, you facilitate the practice of Dhamma. And this is, um, and so the, the, the highest expression of this is the, the monk's discipline, because um, here the Buddha himself was the, the one who created the conventions. And so in his genius, he devised. Um, uh, training rules and customs and, and, and so on and so forth to create the, the maximum, the very best possible conditions for practice of Dhamma. But as lay Buddhists, um, you take the general principle on board and you try to apply it in your communities um, in, in ways that are most supportive of, of practice. There's something I've been talking about a lot the last few days is that um, sila, practice of the five precepts, um, is essentially 
uh, an offering, a gift of safety to the people around you. Because for Vinaya, the most essential need of human being is the need to feel safe. So as, as Buddhists, uh, we say, yeah, I still have a lot of defilements, I'm working on them, I still have greed and hatred and delusion and all these things, um, and it's going to take some time before I, I can really do much about these. Um, but in the meantime, I promise you, no matter how angry and how, how, um, uh, how much resentment I might feel towards you sometimes, even though I love you, is I will not abuse you physically or verbally. And immediately when you hear someone like that and you know that they mean it, you can relax, you feel safe. If someone says to you, don't worry about your possessions, yes, so I have some of the things you, I feel really jealous that you've got those things and I would really like, but I would never take anything that doesn't belong to you. You know, as a couple, you say, you don't have to worry. Um, I still have sexual desires. Sometimes I find other people sexually attractive. This is just a natural part of being a human being but I will never act upon those feelings. I will never betray you. I will never go behind your back. And, and uh, on the basis of those feelings, um, uh, cheat on you um, or even have any kind of private communications with someone that I know would upset you. And you feel, you can feel safe in a relationship. It's not so idealistic. You know, it's not unreasonable. It's something that is doable and practical. And um, although speaking the truth is sometimes embarrassing and it's difficult and it's time-consuming and uh, it brings up a lot of fear of rejection and fear, um, that's why it's such a good practice. I will never lie to you. You know, I will never deceive you. And just... And the Buddha says, this is the greatest gift you can give to another human being. You know, if you want to give a great gift, you don't need a lot of money. You give the gift of precepts. That's the most wonderful thing you can give the people around you. But these four, these four, the first four precepts, um, will only be stable and you can only, um, give that, um, they will only provide that sense of safety when you're also keeping the fifth precept. Because if you compromise on that, you can't sustain that same level of mindfulness, integrity, and commitment to the well-being of others. So you keep the fifth precept as well. And don't take any drugs of uh, intoxicants, whether they're legal or illegal. So this is Vinaya. You know, the, this is the idea of Vinaya. And, and it doesn't, it's not restricted to precepts. Um, I often encourage uh, my students and, and families in Thailand um, to sit down together, grandparents, parents, children, all those who are living together, and devise a family constitution. Um, and so have agreements that everyone can sign up for. So everyone signs their name and frames it and puts it up on the wall. You know, this is our constitution these are our values as a family. Um, these are our agreements and how we, how we practice, how we speak with each other. So it doesn't, you don't have to have fights and arguments about every single point because you have 
an agreement that you've, you've voluntarily signed up for. So it's not an argument between parents and children. It's an argument between um, the person who's behaving badly and their promise, whether or not they're living up to the promises and commitments they made. So in short, um, as I was saying just now, the suffering that we have um, is not caused by anybody else. Ultimately, um, it's up to us. Um, whether or not we suffer. So the things that occur in people's behavior, the situation, are triggers. Or it's somebody knocking on the door um, and asking you to open it. But you don't have to open the door. You don't have to open the door to that kind of stimulus. Um, ultimately, the uh, you have that power, or you can develop that power. You have the potential to exercise that power to refuse to suffer. You, know, you can see, yeah, if I was to open that door, things would get really bad, but you don't have to. Um, and, you, and you no longer need to do that. So that's the essential part of the practice. But at the same time, your commitment to the well-being of your family and community um, is to deal with those kinds of triggers as well to try to reduce the amount of um, triggers and people behaving in ways that are encouraging or, or um, tempting and pressurizing people to lose um, their sense of um, mindfulness and wisdom. So we, um, we believe that the Buddha uh, was enlightened and his enlightenment was the enlightenment as a human being whereby he proved the human potential for enlightenment, and as all of us here are human beings, we can conclude from that, that we all, every one of us, um, possesses this potential for enlightenment, and seeking to realize that potential is what gives our life meaning, purpose, grounding, uh, integrity, happiness. So there's so many uh, people in the world today who are lost. They don't really know what they're doing. And um, we were talking this morning about this this funny idea people have living in the real world. You know, I mean, this is a very sophisticated idea that people just spout when, yeah, you know, you're off in a monastery and you're meditating and you do, you know, you're not in the real world. So this idea they're in the real world. They know what the real world is, and they, they have also a concept of an unreal world, which they're not in. Um, uh, and, um, you know, so it's just one of these things people say uh, to justify their way of life. So the way I, I see so many of the people who say I'm in the real world, I'm reminded of these cartoons. I don't know if you used to... Um, when you were small, you used to watch this cartoon called Roadrunner. But it, it's not just, but there's a general convention in the universe of cartoons. You know, there's certain laws that um, pertain to the law of cartoons. And one is that if you run over the edge of a cliff, as long as you keep running and you don't look down, you won't fall. And you think, you know, that cartoon, people, and then suddenly, you know, they look, and then they fall. The moment they, 
And, and so my view of most people in the so-called real world, they're the people who just, they've just run over the edge of the cliff and they're still running and they haven't looked, they haven't looked down yet. Um, so, you know, this is a, you know, heedlessness, um, that, that comes from this, um, refusal and fear of being alone. Um, again, uh, for the, to repeat something I was speaking about this morning again, challenge somebody who thinks they live in the real world to go into a room, um, with no television, no iPad, no telephone, no books, no distractions, no enjoyments, um, and say, stay in that room for a day, um, and you're forbidden from falling asleep. You can't sleep. You have to be awake. And this is the most stunning thing, that that's probably the most frightening and impossible thing for most human beings, just to be alone and with themselves. Um, so in any country which, you know, most civilized countries abolish capital punishment, so what's the most severe punishment that the state can impose upon a criminal? Solitary confinement. So this is considered to be the worst possible thing, to be alone. Um, and, and yet, you know, that interest and willingness and, and interest in learning about um, the real world, the body and the mind, of form, of feelings, of perceptions, of thoughts and emotions and sense consciousness. This is the way uh, to, to liberation. Um, so we're putting things to the test. We're starting to um, uh, become the seeker, the trainer. We're someone who is un undertaking the Buddha's education. And we're learning and we're making mistakes and we're, and we're going up and going down and it's not a stairway to heaven, it's like snakes and ladders and that's all, all part of it. But um, if we're not thinking we have to do something in order to get some result, but our intention is to learn and we take joy in learning, this is, this is the essence of lifetime learning, you know, and, and that ability to see things as um, an opportunity to learn. And you're meditating and you have all kinds of obstacles, then that's, that's your learning right now. It's not, don't get depressed or, um, discouraged because, uh, you have a lot of agitation or sleepiness and dullness and, and desires in your mind. That is, uh, your curriculum. This is, this is right now in your practice. This is how you express yourself as a Buddhist. You learn about these things and you learn about how they arise. You learn about what feeds them. You learn about what starves them. You learn how to let go of them. So this is constant learning and the things that you have to learn are constantly changing, becoming more, usually more subtle. But there's, um, but you can never just sit back on your haunches and, and relax until you reach the state of the graduate or the arahant, you're still someone who is in need of training, is in need of this, uh, the education. So uh, many people know that the Buddha taught um, us to be content, but why? 
why should we be content? You know, and um, the Buddha is not teaching us to be content, and that's the end of it. Um, but contentment with relation to the material world um, is to free up um, our energy, our time, um, to devote ourselves more effectively to this training. So it's not like more is better. And you, the more you have, the, the better it is. You're saying, um, how much wealth do I need? How much comfort do I need to provide the platform for growth in Dhamma? So it's not a super ascetic standard here. You know, you have to be super frugal and, and, and have no enjoyments in your life and, uh, and just have like sort of the really poor quality things. And that's like to be a really good Buddhist. No, you can, um, you can have, um, uh, comforts and, and conveniences in your life. But the point is that you're always, um, aware that these things don't become an end in themselves. And it's always to provide a sufficient platform or the best platform for growth in Dhamma. But together with the teaching of contentment with regard to the material uh, requisites on which we depend for our life, the Buddha also taught discontent. And um, the Buddha was asked on one occasion, um, immediately prior to your enlightenment, what, what were the most important factors that, that sort of led to that final jump, that final breakthrough? And the Buddha identified two, two factors. One was consistent, unremitting effort. So not just, uh, you know, really going at it for a while and having a bit of a holiday and, but just constant, consistent effort. And the second was discontent um, in the wholesome dhammas that I had already developed. So the Buddha was content with his material circumstances, but discontent with the uh, spiritual um, progress that he made. He's always moving on, moving on, never saying, this is good enough. This is enough for me. I'm, I'm, because before this, you know, the Buddha was so, so, you know, has so much peace and he was so developed so many good qualities, you know. Um, he would have been quite happy just to stop before enlightenment, you know, and then nobody even knew there was such a thing as enlightenment. But because this, this, this questing nature of the Bodhisattva, always moving onwards, never saying enough, never becoming complacent, that he was able to realize enlightenment and to share the teachings to which all of us, 2,600 years later, are still able to benefit from. In Buddhist countries, you know, we, um, people are, um, and I'm sure that you, you know, you've probably had the chance of uh, paying respect to Buddha relics. Um, and it's quite, there's a whole culture around Buddha relics and, and people very excited and, and, um, filled with, with rapture, um, with the Buddha relics. For me, um, the true Buddha relics are not in these, uh, incredible pieces of, of, um, um, bright 
jewel-like stones, but it's the teachings in the sutta. If you, when you read a sutta, and you read this Pali in the sutra, or you chant, these are words that came from the mouth of the fully enlightened Buddha. And if those aren't relics, then what are relics? Yeah. And if you see a, um, a Buddha relic in a, in a stupa, um, it, you know, maybe it makes all the hair on your, on <laughs> your back stand up and you feel rapture. And that's a wonderful thing. But the, the relics of the, the teachings in the suttas and the vinaya, um, these have content as well. These can still lead us onwards and help us in our life and practice as well. So these are the most marvelous uh, Buddha relics. And that it's so wonderful that 2,600 years ago we still have access to these teachings and we can still put them uh, to, uh, to the test in our life because the Buddha doesn't want us to blindly believe them. He said, take these away and put them to the test in your life until, t- until you see for yourself that they're true not just on the authority of the Buddha, although um, we, um, we have great faith in the Buddha and in the Buddha's wisdom, but yet that's not enough. It's, so the Kalama Sutta sometimes is explained as we just discard the authority of the Buddha and the, 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 the authority of the Arahants. That's not the point. Um, the Buddha says we, we greatly appreciate the authority of the Buddha the authority and the experience of the Arya Sangha, of the Arahants. But ultimately, that's not enough. You have to go even further. So it's not saying don't pay any attention to authorities. It's saying make use of those authorities, but you still have to go that one step further and verify it for yourself. And so you know as a direct experience uh, that the Buddha's teachings are true. So this is the, the discourse that I would like to offer you this evening.